Well, when I was arranging Pulpit Supply when I was in the parish, I had a kind of relaxed attitude towards it. My thought was, if the preacher is good, then my folks will be blessed. And if the preacher is bad, then they'll appreciate me all the more. Um, I don't know what I'm here for, but uh, at the end of it, I'm sure you're going to appreciate our minister more. Holiday season with us. Some people like going to the same place year in, year out. The same coffee shops, same beaches, the same attractions, same people to stay with. Other people, that's the opposite. They want to go to new places, see new things, uh, go to new attractions. It's murder if you happen to be married to one who's the opposite. Um, And in that case, the husband always goes where the wife wants to go. When it comes to Bible genre, sometimes you can be a bit like that too. There are parts of the Bible we naturally gravitate towards, we find easier to understand, we have a connection with. For example, some people find Paul and his letters, um, because they are logical, and these people are logical, they gravitate towards that. That's part of the, the, the scriptures that they find easy. Other people like the story forms, so the gospels and the narratives. Um, some people find John in his letters difficult. If you're a logical kind of person who, who moves from point A to point B to point C, you're going to find difficulty with John because John has a different style to Paul. Uh, instead of moving linearly in a line, he tends to progress in a spiral. Um, so the, the center point of the spiral or the, or the circular staircase, the center point that he's addressing and looking at is Jesus. He's at the center of this letter. And he's, he's wandering around and he's drawing our attention to his glories. And on one side of the staircase, there is this great truth. God is life, light. And on the other side of this staircase, the other great truth, God is love. And what he's trying to do is to, to get us to, to wrestle with what does that mean for the church, for persons within the church, for our Christian life, and what does that mean regarding particularly to those that have left the fellowship and in leaving have left a mess behind. Behind this letter, there is a tranche of false teaching and false practice. People guess um, from the letter itself and also from history that these were called the Gnostics or the people that thought they were in the know. And some of the things that were characteristic of these people before they left was that if you really knew the secrets of the universe, you would know that flesh and blood um, is evil, matter is evil. And that salvation is about getting away from matter and getting away from flesh and blood. And and that's your rescue. And because that's the case, then it doesn't really matter what you do in the flesh. It doesn't matter if you sin or lie or commit adultery or whatever. Because if you really know, if you're really in the secret, then you know that what matters is being set free from material world. And they left a sickness behind These Christians knew that this wasn't right, but it destroyed their confidence. And so throughout the letter, you hear John saying, 
By this we know. This is what we know. This is what you know. This is what you heard. This is what we taught you. He's bringing them back to what is the start and the foundation of their Christian life. Teaching always leads to action. False teaching about Jesus will lead to false behavior, behavior that's false to the message. Likewise, when you look at how we live, you can tell something of what we believe. So here's the mess that John wants to fix in his letter. We're going to look at verses 1 to 4 this morning and, God willing, 5 to 10 this evening. Um, So, they're being fractured, they've lost their joy, their faith is weak, he brings them back to basics. Um, The proclamation of the gospel is restated, fellowship is reinvigorated, and joy is restored. Back to basics, that which was from the beginning. I used to play the French horn, and... Um, I got quite far with the French horn before I realized that I'd learned the technique of of, uh, buzzing your lips wrongly. Um, It got me so far, but uh, I was, at the end of that, I was stymied because I couldn't play fast because I was tonguing with my tongue between my lips and not behind my lips. It's just a technical thing. I had to go back to basics and relearn all the muscles and everything else, and it was like a beginner all over. But it meant that eventually I got to start playing fast notes. Um, It was horrible. John says, it's going to be hard for you, but I want to bring you back to basics. And he begins with proclamation. Do you see that in these verses, how often that's repeated? Three times in these four verses, although it's uh, twice in, in the original, Verse 1, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Or verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Um, We proclaim to you, verse 2, the eternal life. So proclaim, 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 announce. He doesn't start with advice. Now, this is what you need to do to sort out your life. This is what you need to do to sort out the fellowship. He starts with the gospel. He doesn't start with morality or lifestyle. He announces the good news. Actions follow message. What we do comes from what we think. And this is why John starts with the truth. If you believe the truth, you will do the truth. If you believe a lie, you will live a lie. If you're half in the light and half in the dark, you're going to live half in the light and half in the dark. Many of the problems in Christian life can be explained pastorally by an inadequate understanding of who Jesus is. Now, it's so important to get this this priority right. Um, Particularly, I want want to say, if any of you here are listening who aren't uh, Christians or just exploring at the moment, I want to say that so often what you hear the Christians say or the church say is all about lifestyle. That's not where we start. Um, When we are trying to defend, uh, we talk about 
um, well, you say the church is against sexual immorality. We're trying to defend purity in, uh, uh, in marriage. Or you say the sex is against sex out with marriage of one man to one woman. Or the church is against gay marriage or polygamy or all these other multitude varieties of sexual behavior. Or the church is against assisted dying. Or the church is against choosing multiple genders and, and insists um, on the binary of male and female. That's what unbelievers hear because we're trying to defend these truths. But I want to say for the Christian, all these things are secondary. The biggest central issue is Jesus and the good news in him. And once we get Jesus right, then you'll understand why we say what we say about marriage and about male and female and about the sanctity of life. And I want to say something to younger people you who love Jesus but you struggle with living better, if you want to do good things and avoid bad things, start with Jesus. Don't start with what you want to do. Start with Jesus. He's the one you want to copy. He's the one that will give you the help that you need to do what is good and to say no to what is bad. So it goes like this. Just ask him every day as we were praying. Andy was leading us in prayer. Ask Jesus to help every day. Ask him, especially when you get things wrong yet again, ask him to forgive you and to help you start over and remind yourself, Jesus came to rescue us from disasters, many of them. We get ourselves into the disasters all the time. And let me say to you, this is not a secret, but big people get into trouble in their Christian life often as well. And we need to go back day by day to ask Jesus for help. Jesus understands. Jesus is patient and he is kind. He doesn't keep a list of the things we do wrong. He always protects. He never fails us. Start with Jesus and we'll be able to do things better. I want to pray for our young ones. Let's just pray for a moment. As we were thinking earlier, Heavenly Father, there are camps going on this week. We thank you for those that give their time for that and their spiritual energy. And we do pray that you will be a help to our young people, that they will see new things in how wonderful Jesus is. And you'll help them when they come back to be changed because they know you better. Help them to walk in the light more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. So he begins with proclamation. Proclamation restated. Now, what is his proclamation? Well, it's the message of life, isn't it? The word of life, end of verse 1. Um, now, in the Gospel of John, he's quite clear on this, that the word is Jesus and Jesus is the word. But I think he means something slightly different, a slightly different emphasis when he says the word of life. Jesus is the word, and he speaks the good news of life for people who are dead to God. But in Jesus, there is also life. He is life. And I think that's what he's more concerned to remind people of in this letter. The life that is in Jesus for your Christian life. That's what I want to proclaim to you. For example, in verse 2, he doesn't say the word appeared. He says the life appeared. 
Um, and in, in verse 2, he doesn't say, we proclaim to you the eternal word, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. So his, his attention, he's drawing us towards the fact that God, Jesus, is life, eternal life. Um, word in, in this context may just stand for the message in total. You know how this is the word of the Lord comes in the prophets often, and it's not just one word, it's, it's a message. Um, I was at a wedding recently, and the, the groom asked his brother-in-law to give a word. And his brother-in-law stood up and said, congratulations, and sat, sat down. Now, we know that's funny, because we know that when he said, say a word, he didn't mean just say one word. He meant a message. Likewise here, it's the message of life. And if you look, glance ahead at, at verse 5, you see that same thing, um, um, same thing re- pattern repeated. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light. So proclamation um, and life, message, and declaration. You see, so that, that's the pattern here. The Christian message that we have heard from him and declare to you is this. It's a message of life in Jesus. That's an amazing thing. The Holy Spirit, through Jesus, comes to us, and the Father, who is the eternal Father, speaks into the chaos of our unbelieving life, into the spiritual death that is the case for everybody before they come to faith. And he speaks a word, a creative word of light and life, We're all in darkness, and God says, let there be light, and our eyes are open to see the shining glory of Jesus. We are dead towards God. We ignore God. That's our natural state, to have nothing to do with God. And God speaks into that deadness of soul, a word of life, and he says, live, and we live. Our understanding, which was dark, is now illuminated. Our death towards God is now revived. Jesus, the eternal word and the eternal life, enlivens us. That's what he's proclaiming. Now, I want to draw your attention, too, to the fact, a characteristic fact of John. He has a way of talking about Jesus in abstract terms. For example, here he says, the life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, of course, he means Jesus who was with the Father, but he used that term, life. Um, Let's go back to the beginning and reread that that first verse and insert his message in it, as it were. Um, Okay. The word of life was from the beginning. We heard the word of life. We saw with our own eyes the word of life. It wasn't something of our imagination, in other words. We studied, we gazed upon, we looked at the word of life. Our hands touched the word of life. He wasn't a spirit. He was flesh and blood, yet was eternal life. So why does John do that? Why, why does he talk in abstract terms? Is that not confusing? Is he depersonalizing Jesus by referring to him as the eternal life or the word of life? Um, I don't think so. I think he would say something like this. 
Jesus is so glorious, so wonderful, so big, that we've got to use everything we can to, in our imagination, in our language, to, to show something of the greatness of his glory. And so I'll pick out these aspects of who he is and just put them there for you to study and contemplate and enjoy. And so he says, I want you to to think about Jesus as the life, the eternal life. Zoom in on this. This is what we proclaim to you. And it's not a thing that he gives us called life. It's not a substance called life. It's Jesus in person that he gives us. We don't get life without him. And this is great news. This is part of our proclamation. Think about it. Eternal life appeared. Eternal life died for sinners. Do you get how astonishing that is? How could it happen? How can the one who can never die because he's eternal life, how can he die? We often speak about why Jesus died. He died to save sinners from their sins. He died to set captives free. But we rarely speak about how Jesus could die. How does the immortal die? He's immortal. He's eternal life. How can it be snuffed out and ended? Well, John hints at two things that need to happen in in his letter for this to happen. First of all, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, The eternal life needed to appear in mortal flesh and blood. He must come in the flesh, he says. No way he can die unless he comes in mortal flesh, capable of dying. But even though God appeared in mortal flesh uh, in this life, taking upon himself in one person two natures, fully God and fully man, fully human, um, he still didn't need to die. He still had eternal life. And John says, nobody took his life from him. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus, the eternal life, laid down his life. That's how he died. No one could take Jesus' life from him. He laid it down. And God raised him back to life. He chose to do this. It was his choice. He could have said no and lived forever. But because he loves sinners, he died so that we might live, that we might receive eternal life. This is what we proclaim to you. The eternal life which was with the Father and then appeared to us. And then when we receive that life through the Holy Spirit, we receive a quality of life that is Jesus' quality of life. He is eternally now fully God and fully man. Whatever that means, it's a mystery, but he is. So that flesh and blood are are raised and reign at the right hand of God. And we share in that life. That life that can never die. That which is is put in us by the Holy Spirit is eternal life. Everlasting life. Life. And that's an amazing good news. We'll shuffle off this mortal coil at one stage. Unless Jesus comes back first. 
but we will live forever. And nothing can separate us from his love and nothing can finally kill us or destroy us because his life is within us. So that's the message he proclaims, the word of life. But he wants to reinvigorate their fellowship. And he says, this is what I proclaim. Now, here's why I proclaim it. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. We proclaim what we have seen and heard so that, so this is his intention in writing, so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. First reason, to restore or reinvigorate fellowship. And the second reason, verse 4, we write this, this proclamation that we write, this proclamation of eternal life, we write this to make our joy complete. So fellowship reinvigorated. Fellowship, that's why I'm writing, John says. Um, Excuse me, I'm going to get a drink of water. It's not last week's, but there we go. Have you ever seen or heard of what's called holiday envy? You know what I mean? You know, you go to Inverness on holiday and somebody goes to Tenerife or a T-shirt. My parents went to New York and all they brought me back was this rubbish T-shirt, holiday envy. Pastor comes back from his holiday. Oh, pastor, you went on a cruise. Lucky you. I think we're paying you far too much. Holiday envy. Maybe you've seen it or suffered from it. Have you ever envied the apostles for their experience? They saw with their eyes. Hmm? They heard with their ears. They watched for three years and contemplated him. They touched him with their hands even after he had been raised to life. They saw. And we only hear. Do you notice how John emphasizes that difference? Look in these four verses of how many times he says, um, we and our, and how many times he just says you. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, did they get more blessings who saw, heard, touched than we who only believe secondhand through their testimony? Is that the case? Do you you envy the apostles for what they saw and experienced compared to what we hear and experience? John would remind us, if we said that to him, of what Jesus said to Thomas. Um, Thomas, you remember, refused to believe unless he could see Jesus and put his fingers in the wounds. And Jesus came and said, here you go, here's my hands, touch them. And Thomas believed. And then Jesus said to him, 
Because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Do you see the implication of that? There is a blessing that comes to people who believe, who have not seen but only heard, that those who have seen, heard, touched, do not get. We get a blessing the apostolic witnesses didn't get. We believe through what we hear. Actually, that's how they believed as well. They believed really when they heard the message on Jesus and the Holy Spirit brought it to life in their hearts. We believe through what we hear. Faith comes through hearing, not through seeing. And hearing comes from the word of God or the word of proclamation. John's saying, I don't want you to envy. Believe our message and you'll get our blessings. You'll get fellowship, our fellowship. The fellowship that we have, you will get. Receive the proclamation and you will share the fellowship that we have with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and you will share our joy in him. So through proclamation, we come to fellowship. Now, what is fellowship? What does he mean by that word? We often limit it to good times together in home group or singing or whatever. Um, it's a far wider term than that in, in the Bible. Um, it's a word that describes what people share in business. So Peter, James, John were in fellowship with regard to fishing business. They had fellowship in the nets, in the business, in the profits, in the loss. They were in fellowship. And they shared the risks and the rewards together. In secular Greek, fellowship describes what is shared between husband and wife in marriage. They share one another and they share all things. Um, with my body, I thee worship. <laughs> you know, with my money, I thee bless, etc. All that I have, I give to you. All that I am, I give to you. Uh, it's it's that, um, that, that fellowship, as it were, between husband and wife. I like to think of it as the family word of the New Testament. For example, you might not understand this being modern people, but when I was growing up in the oldie days, we didn't have half as many consumer goods available as you now have. You know, it's no longer a punishment to send children to their bedroom because they've got TVs, uh, mobile phones, all this kind of stuff there. But in our day, there was one television, one record player, one cassette player, and one telephone. One telephone. And these were all the family goods. You couldn't say, this is my television, I'm going to go and watch it my own. We had these things in fellowship. It was a family-owned thing, fellowship. And likewise in the family when we came to eat, the family meal together was fellowship in the sense that we weren't eating individually, separately, with trays on our laps at different times and different food. We all shared the same meal together at the same time. So the pleasure or the or the opposite, if the meal wasn't very good, that was shared. And everybody got what they needed to eat. Family meal describes fellowship. So it's what you share together. Now look at what John says about the fellowship that we are sharing alongside him, also with him, as he says. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship is in the family of God. 
as precious as the love between husband and wife. All the ups and downs of life that we will go through, he will share in the Father and the Son. Let me try and bring out some of the light of that. In, there's a story Jesus told about two sons. You know, you remember that story, the prodigal son and the elder brother? What did the father say to the elder brother when he went out to him and appealed to him? My son, all that I have is yours. Now that's true of God the Father and God the Son. Describes their fellowship. All that I have is yours, the father says to Jesus. And Jesus says back to him from eternity, all the son says, all that I have is yours. And that back and forth of sharing or fellowship um, is enabled, is there because of the third member of the Trinity who is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, who is the, union, the bond of, that unites Father in that mystery to the Son, not just a thing but a person with two other persons. And John says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is what fellowship is. That's why we proclaim to you the eternal life. And so, in the gospel, in the proclamation, Jesus comes to us and says, all that I have is yours. All that I have. I'm holding nothing back. The virtues of my two natures in one person is yours. You have my death to sin. My death to sins. My death to set you free from Satan. You have that. You have died. You are dead in me. This is the good news. All that I have is yours. You have my resurrection life, my forever life, my eternal life towards the Father in the Spirit. You have that in fellowship. All that I have is yours. Flesh and blood united to God in heaven. And all that he has achieved for us is ours. And that's what John is proclaiming. And that's just something of what he means when he writes, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you along with us also may have fellowship with us, with the Father and His Son. So that's fellowship reinvigorated. And lastly, and short, more shortly, joy restored. Great gospel project for him. Have you ever heard the term UFO? Unidentified flying object. I've heard a different definition of that, um, unfinished object, and it refers to craft projects that um, haven't been finished. And so you have this tapestry that's only got three or four threads on it. You've got this knitting on the needles, this crochet thing that's only half round. You've got this uh, painting on the easel that's half finished, an unfinished object. And depending on your character or temperament, that can either be ignored by you, no bother, and you go on to another one, you half start, or it just drives you mad because you're a finisher and not a starter. Unfinished objects, unfinished projects. Look at verse 4. John has an unfinished object, a UFO. We write this to make our joy complete. Joy is incomplete, unfinished. 
until he writes this letter and you hear the proclamation. He's got a joy project. A joy project. They've lost their joy. They don't know what's fundamental anymore. They don't know what's true and false anymore. They don't know how they should live. They don't know if they really know. And of course they're going to be miserable. And John says, I want to bring you back to assurance. Assurance of faith. Assurance of his love for you. I want to restore your joy. Hear the gospel again. Do you not see how these three things in these first four verses are all linked together in John's mind? He moves from eternal life to fellowship to joy. The message is eternal life is in the Son. The intent behind writing that message, fellowship and joy. Let's just think shortly for a moment about theologically about what joy is. Joy comes from God. It comes from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is called in the New Testament the happy God. The blessed God. The Father rejoices in his Son, and the Son rejoices in his Father. From all eternity, they have rejoiced in one another. Infinite knowledge sees infinite perfection and shows infinite happiness and joy and That is reflected back to the Father in the union of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. From the overflow of that divine joy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made all things. That's why he created, not because he was lonely, but because he was so happy. And just as the angels sang for joy in creation... So when the new creation started at the birth of Jesus, the angels sang for joy before the shepherds. Old creation and new creation. Tears came in when sin came in. And when sin comes, joy is destroyed. When Jesus came into the world, joy came. I wonder what the angels were doing at the resurrection tomb watching. Were they singing? Nobody heard them. Were they struck dumb by this astonishing plan of salvation? Peter says, angels long to look into these things, gaze with wonder and awe at the plan of salvation. And think about the end of this great plan. Go to the end of the Bible, to to Revelation, and when heaven comes down to earth, Jesus is restoring all things, making everything new. And what are we told? They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Every tear. He isn't going to send an angel to do that. He's going to do it himself. So there you are. Your head is bowed down. And he sees it running down your face. And he says to you, why are you crying? You know all things, Lord. You know I let you down. I sinned. I didn't do what I could have done when I should have done it. Of course I'm crying. And joy wipes the tears away. Joy forgives. Joy turns that frown upside down 
into a smile. Joy undiminished. That's the end of the story, the gospel story, the gospel proclamation. Joy shining so bright, it becomes gladness. John says, we write this to make our joy complete. He's not being selfish when he says that. He's saying, our, that is your and my joy, is incomplete until it's shared. Um, And that's the New Testament gospel project. Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Paul says to the Corinthians, we're not lords of your faith, telling you what's right and wrong and what to do and don't do. We're helpers of your joy. Paul says to the Philippians, look, if I got my druther, I'd rather go away to be with Jesus, to be with the Lord. Uh, But if it's fruitful service, I'd rather stay here to progress the joy of your faith. The joy of your faith. Your progress and joy in the faith or progress the joy of your faith. Faith which is genuine will express itself in joy. That's what Peter says. Though you do not love, uh, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with Joy inexpressible, full of glory. It's all the New Testament project. The unfinished object of New Testament gospel preaching is joy. And joy like love is something that grows the more you share. The more you give, the more you get. So John says we write this to make our joy complete. That which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it. The eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you too may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Let's pray together. Wherever, wherever our sin is destroying our joy, speak a word of life and death towards it. Destroy it so that we may rejoice in you. And help us, Heavenly Father, to see more and more how good and great and lovely our Lord Jesus truly is and become more like him. In his name, amen.